Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Wisdom from Facebook, Life Does Not Turn by Your Own Hand. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 14, 2009. I'm a newcomer to Facebook, but I've already learned a smart little trick. Facebook allows you to hide those crazy posts, like what someone ate for breakfast, which character in literature they resemble, where they're vacationing, or when they're washing their dog. But, I have to admit, other posts enrich me, like a former colleague who suggested a book that, quote, I wished I had read 30 years ago. This morning a Facebook friend posted a remark that crystallized the wisdom of this week's scriptures. Many times life does not turn by your own hand. She's right. We're all amateurs of our own mysterious lives. In the New York Review of Books for May the 28th, 2009, Sue Halpern reviews three books about how and why people succeed. Are there common denominators among su successful people that we could imitate? Just imagine, for example, that I could really invest like Warren Buffett if I knew what he knew. Or maybe extraordinary success is the gift of genius. And so, I'll never be a Mozart or an Einstein. <clears throat> In his book Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell invokes what he calls the 10,000-hour rule of hard work. If I practice as long and as hard and as carefully as Tiger Woods, then, well, then what? Statisticians remind us, says Halpert, that you can't extrapolate anything from a sample of one life. Plus, people of similar circumstances experience drastically different outcomes. All these explanations, says Halpern, appear speculative and unprovable. In all of our lives, there's a mysterious mix of many factors. Biology, family, history, chance, choice, education, and wealth. The columnist David Brooks of the New York Times reaches a similar conclusion in a recent op-ed piece called They Had It Made for May 11, 2009. He considers the Grant Study at Harvard University. The Grant Study identified 268 young men who entered Harvard in 1936 and has studied them for over 70 years. The categories of journalism and the stereotypes of normal conversation, writes Brooks, are paltry when it comes to predicting a life course. Their lives played out in ways that would defy any imagination, says Dostoyevsky's. It's the baffling variety of their lives that strikes one the most. It is as if we all contain a multitude of characters and patterns of behavior, and these characters and patterns are bidden by cues we don't even hear. Maybe this is why the psalmist prayer for this week is a little schizophrenic. At first he prays, may God give you the desire of your heart 
and make all your plans succeed. May the Lord grant all your requests. Psalm 20, verses 4 and 5. That's not a bad prayer to pray, not by any means. But I'm also grateful that God did not give me much of what I asked for. And so the psalmist qualifies and deepens his thought. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Better to trust God's providential care for all things large and small than to insist upon success for what you've tried to micromanage. King Saul was a war president. All the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines. He was also a war profiteer, who after defeating the Amalekites took for himself the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good, all under the pretext of religious piety. 1 Samuel 14, 52, and 15, verse 9. Saul conscripted Israel's children for wars and made them his domestic slaves. He confiscated their lands and imposed taxes. Does this ancient story not sound strangely modern? But divine destiny overshadowed Saul's human decisions and history did not turn by his own hand. Samuel deposed Saul and anointed the least likely successor. David was the last and the least of Jesse's seven sons. The first six sons had all the marks of regal authority, but the Lord told Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16:7 David might have looked like a ladies man, handsome and ruddy, but God directed Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. God looks at things differently than we do. And then there's Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a strange vision of two eagles and a vine and a word from the Lord that was even stranger. In the waning days of Israel's kingdom, hapless King Zedekiah broke his treaty with powerful Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon by turning to Egypt for help. No, said Ezekiel, that looks and feels patriotic and brave, but to resist pagan Babylon was to resist the very hand of God. And so we read in Ezekiel 17.24, I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. Things aren't always what they seem. From the gospel for this week, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God grows in inexplicable ways. It's like a farmer who scatters seeds and then, whether he sleeps or whether he gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Sunshine, dirt, and water, then all by, by itself, says Jesus, the seed of the kingdom grows. 
nor does this require super genetically modified seeds. Even a tiny mustard seed produces unlikely giants. Mark chapter 4, 26 to 34. And so in the epistle for this week, maybe this is why Paul tells the Corinthians that he would never dare to commend himself to them as if he somehow bottled the lightning and controlled the magic. 2 Corinthians 5.12 When you search for your high school sweetheart or college classmate on Facebook, you can't help but wonder, where are they now 30 years later? How did they get there and why? Who could have guessed? My wife once told me that if she had not married me, today she probably would be a pastor's wife in a small Midwestern town baking cookies in a parsonage. That's not a criticism of that lifestyle. It's just an acknowledgement that neither of us could have predicted the many twists and turns of marriage. Life, after all, and despite your best efforts and fondest hopes and dreams, does not turn by your own hand. For books this week, I review a book called Picturing the Bible, the Earliest Christian Art. Jeffrey Spear is the editor. New Haven, Yale Press, in association with the Kimball Art Museum, 2007. 309 pages. This gorgeous and hefty volume looks like a coffee table book but it's a book to savor page by page, both for its scholarly texts and its spectacular images, 263 color in 40 black and white. The book was published in conjunction with an exhibition by the same name, Picturing the Bible, conceived and organized by Jeffrey Spear for the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. The exhibit drew upon the collaboration of lenders from nine countries in 41 private and museum collections. In the first half of the book, six scholars write one chapter each on various aspects of the earliest Christian art up through the 5th and 6th centuries. Speer explains how the early Jesus movement first expressed itself in visual forms. Art and architecture flourished in classical Greek and Rome, of course, but the Christians were slow to express their religious beliefs pictorially, and no churches, decorated tombs, nor indeed Christian works of art of any kind datable before the third century are known. This might have been because the earliest Christians were a persecuted and illegal sect, comprised largely of people from lower socioeconomic classes. These early Christians also inherited Judaism's ambivalence towards art, rooted in the prohibition against graven images in Exodus 20, verse 4. But around the year 200, genuinely Christian images began to appear. <clears throat> the 40 catacombs in and around Rome 
Along with the discovery of a house church at Dura Europus in Syria, dated to the year 240, show how the earliest Christian art was not merely decorative, but devotional. Its purpose was not objective beauty, but an expression of faith. In the first decades of the third century, genuine Christian art appeals on seal rings, tombs, clay lamps, engraved gems, and in one instance, a marble statuette. A hundred years after that, Christian art adorns belt buckles and Bible covers, plates and coins, intricate mosaics and ornate crosses, and then, of course, the Christian art under Constantine, which changed all things radically when images became imperialized. The earliest Christian writers didn't say much about art and images. And Speer believes that their hostility towards visual representation has been exaggerated. Most of early Christian art drew upon well-known Bible texts like Noah, Daniel in the lion's den, Moses, Jonah, Adam and Eve, and Abraham. In perhaps the earliest textual reference to Christian art, Clement of Alexandria, who died in the year 215, writes that Christians could also borrow pagan symbols as long as they were appropriate. Swords and bows would be inappropriate, he said, because they symbolize war and violence. But a dove was suitable, said Clement, quote, since we follow peace. The volume stops chronologically short of the iconographic controversy. The last half of this gorgeous book is a catalog of color photographs which, in effect, place the exhibit into your own hands. Christians identify themselves as people of the book who worship the Word made flesh. It took a while but Christians also became people of images. And in those images, they expressed their faith as much as they did in words. Jeffrey Spear, Picturing the Bible, The Earliest Christian Art, Yale University Press. For film this week, I review... Every Little Step, from the year 2008. About halfway through this film, I wondered to myself if the audience would clap when it was over. They did, and it was a spontaneous and well-deserved conclusion. I'm betting that Every Little Step will earn awards for Best Documentary Film of the Year. The story begins as a retrospective about the original Broadway musical, A Chorus Line, which debuted in 1975 and after 6,137 performances became the longest-running musical ever. Archival material and interviews with members of the original production take you back 30 years to the show's simple premise which centered on the deeply human stories of 17 performers. 
The movie then turns to the 2006 Broadway revival of the original musical, and it takes us backstage to follow the stories of the dancers who auditioned for the 15 or so spots. It begins with an open call that drew 3,000 dancers and proceeds through several callbacks until the final cast is set. Many are called, but only a tiny few are chosen for the coveted opportunity. Every Little Step, from the year 2008. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by Robert Frost, one of America's leading 20th century poets, and a winner of the Pulitzer Prize four times. Robert Frost lived from 1874 to 1963. We've posted his famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, June 14th, 2009, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.